Now, as a college student, as a college student, I was curious about the history of Christianity in America, like all college students. No, I was a weird college student. I was always interested in history. When I was a high school student, I had the Constitution hung on my walls. Like, I was, I admit it, I was a nerd, a geek, I was weird, was not normal. But in college, I began to discover that in America, there had been these powerful revivals that sprung up and kind of swept over the United States. And Uh, The Great Awakening in the 1700s, the burnt over districts of the 1880s. And because of what I read and discovered, I, I decided that my college needed a revival. Now keep in mind, at my college, you couldn't drink alcohol. At my college, there was a curfew of 10 p.m. At my college, you couldn't even dance, and yet I felt get this, and yet I felt that my college needed a revival. We needed to be revived and love God. And so a group of buddies and I got together on Sunday afternoons in the the lobby of Traber Dormitory, sixth floor, and we would pray and worship for three hours. Now, for those of you that are younger, I went to church in the morning, because I was a Baptist then, I did the three-hour worship thing. Then I went back to church that night and did church again, and then did the pie afterward. Okay, so that's a longer than an hour, I'm just saying, okay? So we did that and we gathered, and then we added a night a week where we would get together and we would pray for revival. And then we started an underground newspaper, and we thought we were so sly, and we would stand outside of chapel. My college had chapel. It was so secular, okay? And we would stand outside the doors of chapel as students were streaming out and give them this underground newspaper called Listen Up. Do you think it had a bite and a message to it? You better believe it did. Listen up. We need to repent. We need God to move on. And we were excited. And we even started recruiting like-minded people. I graduated from that institution twice. No revival. I concluded that I had heard God wrong. I concluded that revival was maybe just something that I wanted. And do you know what? Revival hit that campus three years after I moved here without me. And I learned a painful lesson in that. You know what I learned? You cannot control God. Some of you are like, preach. (laughs) You cannot control God. God is going to do what God wants to do on God's timetable. Thank you very much. You are far better off if you get with God's program rather than your program because he's all about advancing his program. (laughs) And I learned that, and it was painful. Maybe you've discovered the same thing. Maybe you have a family member that you were like, I know, I just want them to convert. I want them to convert, and you pray and pray, and then, you know, or you had the job that was just made for you, only the job went to somebody else. Or you got into the job, and the job sucked beyond belief, and you were like, Lord, what is up with this? Okay? So... Here's the thing, when you have a need, when you see a problem, our natural tendency is to jump up, jump in and summarize real quickly, well, this is what needs to happen. And and we think we've got it figured out very quickly. Um, And there's a phrase that we use that's tied to it. Well, you know, they just need to. 
right? I mean, you can hear about the problem. We have a pr huge problem. We, uh, young black men are incarcerated at horrific rates. It's a problem. And then for, I'll hear people, you know, they just need to. Or kids that fall behind in school, da 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 da. Well, they just need to. And then people don't go to church anymore, and and they're not go to church less frequency. Well, you, they just need to. There's always this they just need to part of it. Um, at the end of the day, though, I don't think that really works. And in our culture, we have a lot of issues that we're throwing that out. We, we have bathroom issues and who can marry who and where can you carry a gun? And we got all these social issues that we're kind of fighting about. And we have this idea that, well, you know, they just need to, they just need to pass a law or they just need to issue a judicial decree. Well, yes and no. Do you know that God can do so much more than we can do? Do you really know that? I wanna, I wanna tell you about the Welsh revival, okay? so. In the British Isles, it is not a stereotype to say that they have had a long-standing problem with alcohol, okay? In England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland, it has been a long-standing part of their culture to just have drunkenness be the order of the day. And, and this has been the case a long time. Now, in America, we did what we Americans love to do. We passed a law. Not only that, we passed a constitutional amendment. And during prohibition, not a single American touched a drop of alcohol. <laughs> oh, you've been in history class. <laughs> I don't know if they got a, my picture of the Welsh Revival or not, but in, as a result of the Welsh Revival, people just started coming, and repent, coming to God and repenting. And it grew, and it grew, and it grew. And within five to 10 years, virtually every single pub in Wales, in these sections of Wales, had closed. And no one passed a single law. There wasn't a single ordinance. There wasn't a single judicial decree saying, you know, you shouldn't be drunk. Not a single one. It just, alcohol consumption just evaporated. It's the weirdest thing. Weirdest thing, I have, I wrote down a description of the wake of this Welsh revival. The crime rate was reduced by almost 100% in certain districts. During court sessions, magistrates had no cases to try. There were no crimes committed. In some districts, the magistrates were given white gloves and it signified that the docket was empty. Uh, pubs and taverns in the alcohol industry practically shut down. According to one report of the time, quote, men who had not taken home one penny in 17 years now took home all of their pay. Because apparently for the typical guy, he would get paid, he would stop by the pub, he would drink and gamble, and then by the time he got home, oh, honey, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> God can do so much more than we can do. God can do something bigger and better. You would think pastors would get this, but I have to rat us out. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we think that if we just tweak our methodology, you know, if I have a band instead of an organ, if I have a tattoo instead of a tie, that'll do it. If I'm just relevant, that'll do it. Sometimes we have this mindset of, 
you know, there's this pastor in Cleveland and here's what they do and they've got 16 satellites. If I just do what they do up in Cleveland, well, that'll do it. Yeah, we just need to. And I'm just suggesting that maybe that doesn't always work out the way you and I think. So today I wanna take you through the calling of a seminal figure in our faith in hopes of getting you to abandon the hold they just need to and look to God instead and ask, what does God want to do? That person is Moses. If you brought your Bible, we're gonna be in Exodus chapter two and three today. And all these times I've been a preacher, I've never preached on this passage, it's terrible. You guys should be protesting with signs outside. We've been robbed, <laughs> okay? Moses. There are entire movies devoted to his life. I don't know if they've got this picture, but when I was a kid, it was Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. It was on every single year, that and The Wizard of Oz and The Sound of Music, and we watched it every single year. And then, of course, a little later on came Prince of Egypt with some amazing music. Oh, my goodness. And then, recently, Gods and Kings, which was kind of like a, eh. <laughs> Moses' life lends itself to film. It's an amazing story. It's a compelling story. Moses was born a Hebrew. And at the time, the Hebrews were an underclass. They were a race of people that had been subjugated to nothing more than chattel slavery in service of the imperial court. Well, through a series of events, Moses ends up being raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And so his entire life, he is a member of Pharaoh's household. He's trained in the art of war. He's educated as a prince. And I always have to, I wonder, Exodus doesn't tell us, but I always wonder, when did he know? Like, when did he figure out? When was he told, I'm not an Egyptian, I'm a Hebrew? There's this amazing thing that happens in Exodus chapter two, verses 11 through 15. I'm gonna read the passage, and then I wanna point out something. Many years later, verse 11, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw, he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And after looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said, to the one who started the fight. The man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you gonna kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Moses was afraid, thinking everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. The Hebrews had been conscripted into forced labor to build for the Pharaoh. I don't know if you know this, those pyramids don't build themselves, <laughs> okay? And his entire life, he passed by it, he walked by it, he heard about it, he knew about it. But in this passage, something changed. In this passage, we're told in verse 12, he saw, he saw, he took notice. 
there's an injustice, there's a problem, this is wrong. And so he does what, he steps right in. Well, they just need to. And so he inverts the power structure. The Hebrew word for beat and kill is the same root. So basically Moses does to the Egyptian what the Egyptian was doing to the Hebrew. Disposes of the body and thinks, well and good, but the next day it's brought up and he's, he realizes if they know and they're talking about it, it's only a matter of time before it gets to the royal court. And so he runs. And for the next 40 years, he's a shepherd, a man trained in the art of the war, a man who's raised and educated as a prince, and he becomes a shepherd in the middle of nowhere. Now, if you'll remember from our identity series, shepherd and, and sheep, that's, that's a big metaphor, right? And so in the Bible, when sheep come up, who are the sheep? Us, us. And who is the shepherd? God, Jesus, yeah. And so Moses is shepherding in Midian. Well, let's pick it up in chapter three. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of the bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing. Moses said to himself, why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Don't come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pezites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look. The cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how, I, how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of Egypt. There's so many things going on in this passage, but I just want to draw out a few. One, Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel, Martha, Martha, Peter, Peter. You catch you. If God says your name twice, listen. <laughs> okay, this is simple. It's not rocket science. If God says your name twice, listen. Another thing, another thing, take off your sandal. This is holy. This is special. This is sacred. There's something significant going on here. God is here. And so he removes his shoes. In that part of the world today, when you enter someone's house, the very first thing that comes off are your shoes. If you go into a mosque today, the very first thing that comes off are your shoes. I know of an Indian pastor uh, in India, the country India, and to this day in 2016, before he mounts his pulpit, and it's a massive pulpit, he takes off his shoes because in his mind, he's encountering and engaging with the holy, okay? But there's another thing, and it's found in verse seven of chapter three. 
I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries. I am aware of their suffering. This echoes what God says in verses 23 and following of the previous chapter. Years passed and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites groaned under their burden. They cried out for help and their cry rose up to God. God heard, God remembered, God looked down, and God knew it was time to act. Here's another thing. When you see something, when you notice an injustice, I want you to know something. God saw it first. God saw it before you saw it. Before you started to care and before your heart started to be broken, God's heart was broken. And before you ever constitute or formulate a plan in your mind, God has already got a plan for how he wants to address this problem. Just keep that in mind. In this passage, Moses is called. Moses is called. And it's an it's a archetype, it's a pattern that we see happen over and over in Gideon. I've seen it in my own life. But let's, let's look at some things that play out in this passage. One, God initiates. It's the burning bush that draws Moses in. God initiates. The second thing is that the person who's called is in ordinary circumstances. Moses, what's he doing? Is he doing something big time? No, he's standing cheap. Gideon, what's he doing in the wine press? He's threshing grain, ordinary, ordinary, ordinary. Me, when I was 11 years old, I was just in my living room. So many of you can talk about moments when God showed up and issued a call, and it was like, where did this come from? It's not like I was, you know, shadowing Billy Graham at a big critical moment. It was just an ordinary set of stuff going on. Yeah, that's how it works. Another thing, those who are called express skepticism, and we're going to get into that in a moment about Moses' objections. And then the last thing, those who are called learn that God is greater than their lack. Those who are called learn that God is greater than their lack. In, Gen in Exodus 3:11, all the way through, what is it, 14, uh, chapter 4, verse 17, Moses has five objections. And if you've got that picture, awesome. Oh, I love it. Thank you. So Moses says, who am I? I who am I? Who, I can't do this. I'm just tending sheep in Midian. I tried to fix it on my own. It didn't work. Who am I? I can't do this. I will be with you, God says. The next thing Moses is like, well, who exactly are you anyway? How do I know that you're gonna do what you promised? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There's covenantal stuff woven into this. In other words, I'm not just any God, I am the God who always, always, always does what he's promised that he will do. Uh, they won't believe me. Here are three signs, throw down your staff. I mean, it's great stuff. Wah, I'm not articulate. This is, by the way, remember, this is Moses. Moshe is saying this. Wham, I'm not articulate. I'll tell you what to say, God says. Send someone else. Aaron's gonna go with you and babysit you, but by golly, get your butt and go to Egypt. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. I can so relate to this. I remember a time in my life when over a period of two years, I, ha I saw a problem. Oh my goodness, I thought to myself, because I had been a children's pastor. 
churches all across America, all these church-going Americans, and they think what's important happens in the big room, and they're missing out on this huge faith connection with kids and teenagers and, and a connection with home. Somebody's gotta do something about this. Somebody's gotta do something about this. In our own community, over the next 10 years, I can't tell you how many churches will close. Years ago, they stopped needing their nursery. Years ago, they stopped doing VBS, and it's simply a matter of time before they actually close the doors and sell the building. We're missing the next generation. So I was, this fueled me big time, but then when I felt like God was start calling me to go to a, start a church, I exa- this is me right here. God, I can't do that. I'm an introvert. Successful churches are started by extroverted entrepreneurs. I'm not even one of those. Who am I? I can't do this. I can't. Talk about, I'm not articulate. The first time I ever spoke, my senior pastor put his arm around me and said, Max, it's okay, you can be a good pastor and not preach with a darn. Talk about being inarticulate. There it is. And then lastly, God sends somebody else. I prayed that prayer. <laughs> I prayed that prayer. I'm not the only one who's called, gang. You are called. You're called. It may not be in the spectacular way of Moses with a burning bush, but you're called. God calls us sinners into his kingdom, and God calls us into kingdom service. But like Moses, you and I run the risk of passing by a problem, a need, and not noticing it. And I hope, I hope, that you will take notice. The Bible says that many years later, chapter two, verse 11, many years later, Moses saw. So let me ask you a couple of questions. What makes your blood boil? I'm not talking about traffic on the way to Lexington. What makes your blood boil? I'm not talking about your stupid friends making their stupid posts on Facebook. What makes your blood boil? Is there something that is a problem, that is a wrong, that is an injustice that makes your blood boil? What do you see? What do you see? I want to tell you something about Generations Community Church. In the early days of this congregation, we saw a problem. Faith shouldn't just be a Sunday thing. There should be a connection between home and church. We gotta have some kind of strategy and passion for passing on faith to the next generation. But in the early days, we were obsessed with filling a gym. But I wanna tell you that we've come, we underestimated how God could change family trees and family systems. We underestimated how God could change lives in a community in and through us. I'm convinced that as we pivot this year and as we tweak some things and as we go forward, the next 10 years are gonna be, make the last 10 look, you know, lame. I think the best days lie ahead. I look at some of the ways that we've been able to build bridges. I look at some of the family trees that have been changed. And you, you hear them talk about their parents, their grandparents, and I'm like, what? And you're on this path? Are you kidding? That's not supposed to happen. Did I mention God can do so much more than what we can do on our own? Yeah, he can. Thank you, Josh. I, I, I want to point out one story that bears this out. 
But before I do that, I wanna share you, okay, so there's a few principles. For those of you that love your Bible studies, what can you take away from this passage and what we just talked about? One, God can do far more than we can. So when you find yourself and you actually notice something and you see something, rather than jumping in and trying to fix it right off the bat, I want you to ask, God, what are you up to? Remember, God cared before you did. God noticed it before you saw it. God's got a plan before you come up with yours. God, what are you up to? What do you want to do? Second principle from this, God meets us where we are. Moses was tending sheep. You're gonna be doing whatever. God will meet you where you are. That's good news. You don't have to put on a cape. You don't have to get your act together. God will meet you where you are. And God still calls people today. He still calls people today. So that you get this, I want to tell you about Blake. And if they'll put his first picture up here. Blake was, uh, Blake's a talented guy, right? Blake's an entrepreneur in his own right. But his full name is Blake McCoskey. And in 2006, uh, he had already been on the, the Amazing Race as a contestant. He had started a laundry business in college. But in 2006, he went to Argentina. And while he was in Argentina, he was like, man, none of these kids have shoes. And this is a problem. And it's a problem for health reasons. And it's a problem for school and some other things. Like, this is, you know, it shouldn't be this way. And he mulled over it, mulled over it, mulled over it. And I've been at conferences where he's talked and he said, you know, God is so much bigger than what we give him credit for. So he starts this business and the business is predicated on a model of, we're gonna make shoes. You're gonna buy this cool shoe that you think is awesome, but the price that you pay us is gonna enable us to turn around and give a kid somewhere else a pair of shoes that doesn't have one. <laughs> Thanks. It's called the one for one model. Since 2006, he and his company, Tom's Shoes, have given away over 60 million pairs of shoes. Okay? 60 million pairs of shoes. And he has spawned, this has taken off in other areas. So the one-for-one -one model, healthcare. I mean, it, there's all kinds of things that are now predicated on this model. And it started with him simply taking notice of a problem and a need and asking God, what, do you, what are you up to? What are you up to? I'm telling you, God can do so much more than what you or I can with our first inclination.